Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. All right, Acts chapter 2, we're going to read real loud, real big together. Fellas, put some bass in your chest, all right? Fellas, if you mess up on your reading, I get it, I understand. Ladies read better than the guys. Um, Demetria in particular, just, 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 just let the Holy Spirit work out for you. I mess with him every Sunday. He's all right. <laughs> I mess with him every Sunday. All right, ready? Read. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. Father, I pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive what you have to say. Um, Lord, I pray this morning that the message would have clarity, God, that we would have understanding. Um, Lord, but I also pray, Father, that Christ would be exalted today. God, ultimately, if we preach a message and Christ is not the centerpiece, um, then we wasted our time. But today, God, I pray that we would make Christ known through the preaching of the word. Um, Father, I'm just a vessel, just an instrument here, God, but I'm here to just to declare what you've said in your word, God. So I pray today, Father, that you would touch our hearts, touch our minds, that we would be transformed by the hearing of your word today, God. And so, Lord, I pray that we're not just spectators today, God, but that we participate in what you are saying to us, God, that, that we're not sitting in silence, God, but that we respond to the goodness of your word, Lord. And so, Father, I just thank you for it now. I praise your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is The Beauty of the Bride. The Beauty of the Bride. One of the greatest theologians in the history of Christianity by the name of Charles Spurgeon had this to say. He said, if I had ever, if I had never joined a church until I had found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I would have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. I can relate to what Charles Spurgeon is saying in this particular quote as it relates to the church, that although we all have expectations on how the church should be, we often find that the church is an imperfect place. But even if the church is imperfect, I agree with what Spurgeon has said, that the church is the dearest place on earth. And here's why. For all of its blemishes and marks through history, and currently the negative perception of the church, the impact of the church on the world is simply undeniable. Here's why. 100 of the first 110 universities in America were founded for the express purpose of propagating the Christian religion. 
And so when we think of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, and Rutgers, we think of Ivy League schools that are hard to get in. But what I need you to understand is the historical purpose of those Ivy League universities. They were put in place and founded to be places that would push the Christian uh, agenda, that they were found to exemplify and teach people how to love and live for Christ. When we think about things that happen in the world, when, when calamity strikes, when, when natural disasters happen, we think of all of the organizations in the world that move to help people. And oftentimes we sit and say, man, why is the church not moving? Why is the church not doing something about these tragedies? But what we don't realize is the, both the American Red Cross and the Salvation Army are Christian organizations that have been helping Christians for ages. And so the church, as for as much as the culture wants to paint it in a negative light, if we look at the totality of the church and the impact it has had on our culture and the impact it's had on American history, the church is nothing to be ashamed of, even with all of its blemishes. And so uh, to, to Spurgeon's point, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll be the first person to mess it up. And so here's the thing, a lot of times our culture takes shots at the church and takes shots at the scandals in the church and takes shots at what the church has not done as it relates to helping the world when tragedy strikes. But here's what Jesus said about the church. Jesus said this, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And hear what Jesus said, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. That is to say that as much as the culture hates church, the church is not going anywhere. And so for all of its blemishes through the years, the church is still Christ's bride and the only institution that he ever died for. And so the church is God's plan A for the world. And let me tell you this at the outset, the church is not about you. The church is for and about Jesus. Let me say that again. The church is for and about Jesus. How do you know that, pastor? Because when Paul writes to Titus, here's what Paul said in Titus 2. He said, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. And so the church church does not belong to itself. The church actually belongs to Christ Jesus. It's interesting because our culture now has taught us to treat church like we're going to the mall, not knowing that when Jesus saved us and redeemed us, he brought us with a precious price. And we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. And so therefore, he sets the agenda for the church. And so in the context of our passage today, the first church in the book of Acts that we see, they were to live out in the context and reality of God's forgiveness by the power of his gift, which was the Holy Spirit. And so these people got saved and God saved them for himself. And then he saved them, but he didn't leave them to himself. He gave them a gift to do what he called them to do. He gave them a gift called the Holy Spirit. And so the first church was a church of spirit filled People. The church was a church of spirit-filled people. A spirit-filled people or a spirit-filled church demonstrates a life that can only be lived out by the Spirit's power. The church in the book of Acts had many characteristics, but today's text will give us 
four foundational characteristics in potential. And these characteristics are on display in the church because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at these four characteristics as the ideal church for today, we should strive by the Spirit's power to make these as commonplace as they were back then. And the first thing that we see the church doing was teaching. That's interesting because today we don't see a lot of teaching. We see a lot of nonsense. And so the first activity that the church consisted of was, it says, the apostles' teaching. Teaching was the lifeblood of the church because the teaching was based, it was based on the Old Testament. It was based on all the things that Jesus said and did. In fact, this passage comes on the heels of one of the greatest sermons ever preached. If you look back to Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through roughly 37, you will see one of the first sermons. It is a beautiful sermon by Peter. Peter had just preached a Christ-exalting sermon that if he preached it today, it probably wouldn't be shared a million times on social media. It probably wouldn't put up huge YouTube numbers, and people probably wouldn't subscribe to Peter's podcast channel. Because it wasn't a seeker-friendly message about some self-centered personal ambitions of the audience, but the message was so spirit-filled and Christ-centered that after the masses of people heard it, the Bible says that their hearts were pierced and their, they, their response was this, brothers, what must we do to be saved? That's an amazing message that after you hear the message, your question is, brothers, what must I do to be saved? And so this message drew them to their need for a savior. And so his response wasn't, well, just live a happy life. His, his response wasn't, well, just speak and say positive things. His, his, his response was, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. He said, what, was, what must we do to be saved? He said, you must first turn away from the lifestyle that you're currently living. Amen. And so that sounds harsh and offensive in our culture, but that's the first message. And what happened when he preached that message? 3,000 people got saved. 3,000 people got saved on that day simply because he preached Christ and the Holy Spirit did the work in their hearts. And so what we need to take away from that is this. God built and God is building his church by his word. And so the same way God spoke creation into existence in the book of Genesis, he has spoken his new creation, the church, into existence by his word. And so Jesus' mission statement for the church, if you ever, ever read Matthew 28, the Great Commission one of the things that Jesus told them to do was teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Jesus said, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to teach them. And so the thing is, in our culture, there's not a lot of teaching, but there's a lot of entertainment. And so Dr. Albert Moeller had this to say in the scandal of biblical literacy, it's our problem. Here's what Dr. Moeller write, wrote. He said, according to data from the Barner Research Group, 60% of Americans can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. That's nobody in here. He continues, secularized Americans should not be expected to be knowledgeable about the Bible, but the largest scandal is biblical ignorance amongst Christians. Choose whatever statistic or survey you like, the general pattern is the same. Americans, Christians know less and less about the Bible, and it shows. He concludes by saying this, we will not believe more than we know, and we will not live higher than our beliefs. The many fronts of Christian compromise in this generation can be directly traced to biblical illiteracy in the pews and the absence of biblical preaching and teaching in our homes and in our churches. 
And so having a church that is built on the word of God is so vital because it informs everything else. It informs how we respond to God, how we respond to each other, how we respond to those in the world around us, and it shapes how we do ministry. So if we as a church just do a bunch of stuff based on how we feel or what we think is cool or following the pattern of some other churches that could or could not have Christ as its focal point, we will miss the mark every single time. But if we remain as a church in line with God's word to the best of our abilities, then the spirit's power, we will be the church that is instructed by Christ and not by culture. So when we think of spirit-filled congregations, we think of one with high emotionalism, high emotionalism. People are running around in circles and falling out and rolling on the floor and foaming at the mouth. And that's cool if that's what you want to do. I have no problem if that's how you get down. That, that, that's fine. That's cool. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. But I think I find it interesting that after the Holy Spirit came for the first time and filled the first members that were up in the upper room, the 120, they began to speak in tongues. But what I want you to notice about them is this. They got the first endowment of the Holy Spirit, but here's what they did not do. They didn't abandon the teaching and studying of God's word because the Spirit was at work among them. And so they just said, we're just going to worship for three hours and see what the Lord says and go home. No, there was a focus on the word of God. And so your worship should be shaped by what you believe. And if it's not shaped by what you believe, then what is it shaped by? How you feel? And so the word of God is important for us. It's, it's important for us. Here's what it says in verse 43. It said, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Like the signs and the miracles were, were, were at, at, a, at a high. And so this was not because the guys had some supernatural power within themselves. This was God working through them to validate what they were teaching. When they were doing miracles, that was God saying, I agree with what they are teaching. And so we see the miracles in the Bible. We should know that it's saying, number one, what they are saying is true. And number two, they're trying to get us attention and point us to Jesus. But oftentimes in our church today, we have a healing miracle signs and wonder service. I'm like, how do y'all just do it on cue? How do y'all just know that y'all going to be able to heal six people tonight if they come and get together? How are y'all doing that? And so it has to be shaped by the word of God. And so if we look at the New Testament and we look at the Apostle Paul all throughout while he's talking to Timothy and Titus, he tells them to do the same thing. He tells them to teach sound doctrine. But here's the thing. It's not that just a healthy church is one that teaches sound doctrine, but a healthy church is one where the people submit to God's word when it's taught. And so it was Jesus said, Rather be blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, who hear it and keep it. And so commitment to sound biblical teaching is good for us. It's good for us. You want your neighbor in church to know the Bible. You want to be well-versed yourself. You want your friends to be well-versed in the Bible. Here's why. Because it helps each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it in, in proper perspective for us. He said this, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. The Christ in his heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. Here's what I've learned in pastoral ministry. I stopped going to counseling sessions with people without my Bible. Because what I realize is people can debate your, your opinion, but they can't debate the word of God. 
And so we can tongue wrestle all day about what you did and what you didn't do, what you should be doing. But when this gets laid down on the table, then the argument stops. And so I'd rather let you argue with God than argue with me. And so we have to become so well-versed that when our friends come to us, we don't speak our opinion or our feelings. We speak what thus saith the Lord to them. You want your friends to tell you what the word of God says. You don't want your friends to language with you and agree with your nonsense and your foolishness. You want your friends to be able to show you in the Bible and point you straight to Jesus where true healing happens and takes place. So it's important that we all know the Bible. That's interesting that, that he mentions that we will want our brothers and sisters to know the word so that they can properly minister to us. That's interesting because Christianity is personal, but it's not individual. It's personal, but it's not individual. And the second point, for those taking notes, <laughs> is that there was fellowship. First thing was teaching. The second thing was fellowship. And so we look at it, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to the fellowship. And so the church was so united in the Holy Spirit that it, it worked itself out in the way that they interacted with each other. When we look at the New Testament in its totality, it's replete, it's replete, it's filled with scriptures about the church loving one another and serving one another. I'll run through a couple of them real quick. Romans 12 and 10 says this, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another through love. Galatians 6 and 2, carry one another's burdens. And I think this is paramount in today's version of Christianity where we are taught that I love Christ, but I don't do the church. That's always interesting to me because the church is called the bride of Christ. If the church is the bride and he is the groomsman, how do you say you love the groom but you don't love his wife? And so this idea of I love God but I don't do the church is an oxymoron. That doesn't make any sense because I don't know a man worth his soul that says you can love me but not love my wife. If you don't love her, then you don't love me. But if you love me, then you'll love my wife too. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to the church. And so you should not be ashamed to be a member of a church. You should not be ashamed to serve in the church. It is just a demonstration that you know and understand what God has done for you in your life. And so you work that out by coming and being amongst other believers and working out the gifts that God has given you to serve somebody else. And so if people are out of fellowship with Jesus, then it's likely an indicator that they are out of fellowship. If they are out of, out of fellowship with Jesus, it's people it's an indication that they're out of fellowship with Jesus himself. I don't do, I love Jesus, I don't do the church. And so you should reinterpret that for them. No, you are out of fellowship with Jesus, therefore you don't love the church. Because that is what that means. Here's what Apostle John had to say in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 from the Message Bible. He said this, you can read it on the screen, he said, we saw it heard it and now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us this experience of communion with the father and his son Jesus Christ he says he wants them to experience it our motive for writing is simply this we want you to enjoy this too your joy will double 
our joy. They found it a joy and a privilege to be members of a church. They knew that they had fellowship with God, but they also had fellowship with each other, and it brought joy to their lives. It was Bonhoeffer who also said, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we allow to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. To be a part of a local church is a treasure. It is a gift to be a part of a local church. It's a gift to be a part of the church. And it says this, it says they, the third thing that they did for those note takers is that they were taught, uh, they taught that fellowship and they broke bread, breaking of bread. And so breaking of bread, most scholars believe, is what we just saw happen at the outset of our service, was that they frequently shared in the Lord's table, that that was a visible picture of what the gospel looks like and what Christ did for them. So not only did they break prayers, the fourth thing that they did was that they prayed. What rings and echoes in my head is when Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's what Jesus said. And so along with the word, prayer was the lifeblood of the church. In conjunction with the Holy Spirit, this was where their power came from. If you look back at Acts, the first chapter, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it said they were all continually United in prayer, continually united in prayer. The church was always praying. They didn't just pray on Sunday mornings. They prayed every time they got together. They were always praying. It was a, it was a part of who they were as believers. The church had regular systematic times when they came together to pray, and then there were times where they just spontaneously prayed together. They prayed in the larger church services, and they prayed in the smaller meetings together. The church was always praying. The church was the Dependent upon God and sought his direction in all things. They were not moved by their feelings, but by God's guidance. And the problem with many of us is we make moves by our feelings and not by God's guidance. And so they understood that if we've been called by God and commissioned by him, it would behoove us to get direction from him. And so when we think about the first church, there was too much persecution in their lives for them not to be praying. And so although we don't face the kind of persecution that they faced, we should still be praying because there's still a spiritual warfare that is going on that we can't see. There are still things that are happening that, are, that, that we can't see. And so we must learn how to pray. The only weapon God gave us was what we say with our mouths. And so we need to say that and say what God said through prayer. We should be a praying people. We should be praying about everything. There is only so much that we can do in our own power. It is the arrogant person that is a non-praying person. Here's why. To not pray and seek God's help and strength is to say, God, I got this on my own. Well, I don't know about you. I'm too weak to have it on my own. I need God's help and God's guidance. I need God's help to go to Walmart. And so, somebody, that's, that was a testimony for somebody. <laughs> the early church didn't have a lot of resources. They, they didn't have a lot of money. But that didn't keep them from turning the world upside down because they knew how to access heavenly resources through their prayer life. And so here's what it says in verses 44 through 45. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had needs. And oftentimes when this is read, it brings controversy because people think that they had to take this vow of poverty and, and that they couldn't have any possessions. This was not some 
socialist, communist experiment that the church was doing. And so let me say this, that having possessions is not bad or evil in and itself. People often say that money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money, <laughs> the love of it is the root of all evil. You can put a, put a dollar in one person's hands and you can put a dollar in another person's hands. Somebody might go buy drugs with it. Somebody might give it to a homeless person. What was wrong? Was it the dollar that was wrong or was it in the wrong hands? And so money within itself is not evil. And what they're trying to communicate, what he's trying to communicate, and it says when they had everything together, is that this was the idea that, that if I have to let go of one of my possessions to help you if you have need of it, I'm willing to do that. They're saying, if I got a lot of stuff and I see you need something, I'm not going to let you go without because I have extra. I'm going to give you what I have, even at a sacrifice to myself. Now, that sounds crazy to us because we live in a culture where it tells us to accumulate everything. Hold tightly. Get your money and stack your chips. Get the bag. Some of y'all need to let the bag go. Amen. Stop putting that bag stuff on your Instagram page. Stop it. Knock it off. But here's what they did. They held loosely to their possessions. And if a situation came up, they helped their brothers and sisters in need. Oftentimes, people don't need our prayers. They need our provision. They need our provision. And so, so, so for us, as a church, this is what happens with church. People come in, what can the church give me? As opposed to asking, what can I give to the church? How can I be a blessing? Because the kingdom calls us for radical generosity, to give more than we receive. It's the nature of a Christian to give. Why? Because Jesus gave his life for us. And so our response is to give of ourselves for the benefit of somebody else. And so when a, truly, when a church person has truly had a changed heart, they want to become generous because the nature of our salvation was God being generous towards people that didn't deserve it. Jesus gave generally to those of us that were not necessarily poor in money, but we were absolutely poor in spirit. And he gave us everything. And here's what it says in verse 46. It says, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. And they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with the joyful and sincere hearts. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from how every day, every, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. What I need you to see is that there's a unity and a togetherness there, but most importantly, I want you to see that it wasn't in frequent contact. He could have just said they devoted themselves to meeting together, but he says a qualifier. He says, Every day they met together. Every day. I don't think this is strange that we should find that he talks about every day because if we look through the New Testament, we look through the church. Here's what it says in uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. When Jesus talked to his disciples about what it takes to be one of his, he says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. 
Hebrews 3 and 13, it says this, but encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. This is not legalism, but there is an obvious pattern in the church's regular fellowship. I want to show you something on the screen that I think puts it in plain sight for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, it says this, let us be concerned for one another to help one another to show love and to do good. Let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing. There are people who will say that they are a member of the church, but they habitually don't show up. That was happening then, and it still happens now. But here's what it says. Let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing. Instead, let us encourage one another all the more since you see the day of the Lord is coming near. You want to know what's the most important ministry of every Christian in the local church? You want to know what's the most important thing you could ever do? Being present. Being present. Being seen. Being known. So I don't want you to hear this because most people think coming to church saves you. Church attendance does not save you. That's not how you become saved. Church attendance does not save you, but it is one of the many indicators that you are saved. And you grow through sitting under the word on a regular basis. So the people did not just meet at church, though. They didn't just meet at the temple. They met from house to house. They met in large groups. They met in small groups. And so there was intimacy there. People were known. People's lives were known. They knew each other. Being brothers and sisters in Christ extends beyond the sacred space of church on Sunday mornings. It happens in everyday environments. But what, what surprises me oftentimes is that people complain about a lack of community rather than asserting themselves in the community, in the local church, and serving and loving other people. I don't know nobody at the church. Well, have you tried? How often are you there? Well, I'm there twice a, twice a month. Right. You're not there. And so, therefore, you're not there. So, therefore, you have no community. And because you have no community, likely you're not growing as a believer. And so he, he doesn't tell us to come and meet together daily just for our own health, but it's for our benefit. It's for our benefit. Can you imagine if you only ate once a week? I'm trying to figure out what this, what this diet is going to look like. I can't be vegan for two days. So what if you ate once a week? How would, how would you feel? How productive would you be? How effective would you be? Better yet, how healthy would you be? How healthy would you be? But I want you to notice another thing. It doesn't communicate that them meeting together daily was a sacrifice. They met regularly, and it was a part of who they were. It doesn't say it was a great sacrifice. It doesn't say, oh, man, I got to make a sacrifice to go out and be with them on a Tuesday night. Shameless plug for small groups. It doesn't say that. It just says that they met together. It was in the fabric and DNA of who they were as a church. They met together at the church, but then they broke bread from house to house. They ate together. They ate Chick-fil-A chicken sandwiches together on a regular basis. They ate Chick-fil-A sandwiches together on a regular basis because those chickens are saved. You see what... You see, what happens with a Chick-fil-A chicken is this, is that another chicken is about to be plucked, and the Chick-fil-A chicken comes up and stands in their place and says, take me. And it, so it stands, and it, these are gospel-centered chickens. 
It's a gospel-centered chickens. You interpret them tongues how you want to interpret them. But, but, but in all seriousness, you know what's interesting? Is that they met in each other's homes and they shared meals with each other. You know, it would be crazy if I meet with you on a regular and we share meals together. How heinous would it be of me if I gossip behind your back if I ate with you every day? And so when we don't have intimacy and contact with people on a regular basis, we don't appreciate them and we don't honor them. It's easy for you to talk about somebody that you don't know. But not until you get up close and personal in somebody's lives and you know their story do you feel some sort of compassion for them as opposed to using your words to gossip about them. You take that same energy and you put it towards praying for them. And so we, we, when, this, when we meet together outside of the local church, it establishes a unity and an intimacy that we can't get if we only see each other once a week. And so when they say, he says, they were devoted to meeting together. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to breaking bread. They were devoted to the prayers. They were devoted to the fellowship, devoted. It implies work. And it applies accountability, it implies endurance, stability, persistence, and perseverance. And so community and fellowship is a two-way commitment. It takes a commitment, but the problem is we live in a generation where everybody has commitment phobia. And so when things don't work your, in your favor or the way you think they should, you walk the other way and you give up and you quit. And so the church calls us to have some sort of stick to well, when, when times get difficult, we don't run away, but we make ourselves known and we make ourselves accountable. What happens in church is typically life happens and people stop coming to church. And there's nothing more that Satan would love to do to you to keep you in isolation. Because he realizes that you are not more powerful than he is. But when you're in community with other believers, he's not more powerful than you guys are together. And so community is important for Believers, And here's what it says. I want you to notice something. Verse 46 to 47. And I'm almost done. Here's what it says. Verse 46. It says, they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, they, they ate in the fellowship hall, depending on what kind of church you grew up, they ate in the fellowship hall, in the church annex, or in the community center, or wherever y'all ate and had chicken dinners or fish sandwiches at the church. They ate together, and it said they did it with joyful and sincere hearts. What I want you to notice is not that they had to do it, but they had an attitude behind it. There was joy there. This is amazing because many of us base the frequency of our fellowship in correlation to how perfect things are going in our lives. So if things are going well, you're at church. When things go bad, you're not there. So here's one of the things that I appreciate. I couldn't appreciate it then, and I really didn't like it then, um, but I didn't say nothing because I wanted to keep my teeth that I still have in my mouth. Um, mama, not my mama, somebody else's mama. My mama <laughs> made you go to church whether you felt like it or not. You see, you guys, y'all new Christians. Y'all the optional Christians. You go if you feel like it. You go if your week went well. Well, us 80s, 70s Christians, early 90s Christians, you went to church or you died. 
You, you went to church and you stayed there all day. There was food afterwards. There was a young people's meeting. There was the usher board meeting. There was a steward board meeting. There was an all kind of meeting. There was a choir number one meeting, a choir number two meeting, a church, old people's meeting, a young people's meeting, a everybody meeting. There was always something going on, but here's the thing. You felt this sense of unity and togetherness, and because of your parents forcing you to go to church, you ain't crazy now. And so for as much as people say stuff about the church, here's what I want you to notice about them. They praise God in spite of how they felt. Some people find it hard to praise God when things aren't working out according to their plan, but that shouldn't be so praised. ain't predicated on us. It's predicated on who God is. And while life may be hard at the moment, imagine how hard it will be without having Jesus in your life. And so no matter what season of life you're in, whether you are broke, praise Jesus. If you got all the money, praise Jesus. If you got a degree, praise God. No degree, praise God. Up, praise God. Down, praise God. Sick, praise God. Healthy, praise God. Tired, praise God. Full of energy, praise God. It does not matter because God is good in spite of our circumstances. And so I love this because their hearts, their hearts were gripped by what they believed and they sang songs and they sang the psalms together corporately in unison, and it wasn't commonplace for them to just sit there in awe and just look at and observe and soak in all that God was doing around them. They praised God in all seasons of their lives. But the final element I want us to look at is this. We never see a church in the Bible that is so selfish and focused on its own needs that taking the message of the gospel and engaging with those outside of the church was ignored. They never ignored the community around them. They never did that. So that points us to two things. Number one, their faith in God and love for another was attractive to those outside of the faith. Here's why I say this. John 13, verses 34 through 35 says this. It says this. I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's significant for us. Because the way that people should be able to tell that you are a Christian is how you love other Christians. But what do we communicate when the world, to the world when we eat our own? What do we communicate to the world when we backstab our own? What do, what do we communicate to the world when we, we gossip incessantly about our own people? What are we communicating? But when they see us expressing the love of God towards each other, it makes the faith attractive and we don't look crazy. We look appealing to people. And so the second thing I want you to notice is that the church did not look within, but the church looked without, not only displaying their love, but they shared the gospel. So here's the thing. The church has always been evangelistic. The church has always been evangelistic in nature. The church has always did life and invited other people to the table. And it's really the great commandment on display where he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So God doesn't just call us to love us or love him or love other Christians. God doesn't call us to just love people that are easy to love. 
See, our culture's love is I love you when it's easy for me to love you. Biblical love is I love you even when I might not be able to be able to stand you. And so it says, I look at you not as an enemy, but I look at you as an image bearer. And your life has significance. You tripping right now. You crazy right now. You getting on my last nerve right now. I want to punch you in your face right now. But I'm not going to punch you in your face. I love you. And so when the world sees that, it becomes attractive. But God doesn't just command us to love other Christians. He calls us to love our neighbors. Do you know if your neighbor's saved? I'm going to keep going. And it says this. Because of the evangelistic approach to the church, it says that every day the Lord added their number, those who were being saved. Every day people got saved. Every day people were getting saved. Well, if they didn't meet in the church every day, how are, how are people getting saved? Because people were telling them about Jesus on their jobs. People were telling them about Jesus in the classroom. Wherever they went, people were sharing their faith. If you love somebody, you, you share with them the thing that will save their lives. We share Christ not only by what we say about him, but by showing the transformation that comes about when we follow Jesus. There should be something fundamentally different about the life of a Christian than a non-Christian. There should be something about your life that people look and say, huh, it's something interesting about them. When everything else is going crazy at this workplace, they still maintain their cool and keep their peace. So that makes your faith attractive and you share your faith with people, not just verbally, but by how you respond to life challenges. But here's the thing about the church. I said this at the outset, the church is for and about Jesus, and I'm done. Here's the most important thing you need to realize, that if it was not for Jesus, none of us would be able to be a part of this beautiful thing that we call the church. Jesus is the reason that we are here. We get into the church by the cross. The cross is the entry into the church. Jesus is what is holding the church together. We were all dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, but he made us alive in Christ Jesus. So we are no longer foreigners or strangers, according to Ephesians 2. But here's what it says. We are not foreigners or strangers without a home, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone and him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord and in him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit Jesus is holding everything together so I don't ever want you again to think about the church and think of something that just takes away from people but I want you to see the life-giving nature that you are a part of or that you have an opportunity to be a part of through the way of Jesus Christ. That the church, more than any fraternity, more than any sorority, more than any organization in the world, is the only institution that Christ died for. He died for his bride. What does it take for me to be a part of that? The same thing that Peter says, that you must repent Turn from your ways and run towards Jesus. Does it mean I'll have a perfect life? No, it doesn't mean you will have a perfect life. If you had a perfect life, then you would be the Savior. But it means that you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That all know not perfect, you know how to boldly run to the throne of grace to obtain mercy in your time of need. And so... In a culture where everybody takes shot at the church. Oh, the church doesn't do this. Oh, the church doesn't do that. Oh, the church is this and the church is that. The church is a beautiful thing. And you have, a be to, you have an opportunity to be a part of that which is beautiful.
in that which Christ died for. Jesus died the death that you and I should have died. He stood in our place and God poured out his wrath on Jesus because of our sins. And he died. But the good news is, is that he didn't stay dead. Three days later, God raised this same Jesus from the grave. And through that, we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And through Jesus, we have life eternal. And so if you're here today, I want to invite you into the most beautiful family that you could ever be a part of called the body of Christ. That Jesus died for you. That he died to save you from sin. But when he saved you, he didn't leave you alone. He invites you into an entire new family with new brothers and sisters that may stick closer to you than a real brother. And so don't be ashamed of being a believer. Don't be ashamed of being in church. But boldly declare that Jesus has saved you and that you now see the beauty of the bride. Let us pray. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.